Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet-friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. This podcast is brought to you by Go Green Locally Org, a 501c3 Nevada nonprofit. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with two individuals that are excellent community resources for information and supplies to help enhance and restore our local ecosystems and for greater success with gardening, farming, and landscaping. After our two interviews, I'll share a quick rundown of local events coming up in September and October. And now let's dive in. I'm speaking with Ed Kleiner with Comstock Seed in Gardnerville, Nevada. Let's start off with you telling me a little bit about Comstock Seed and how you got about to creating this company and and a little bit of the history. Uh, 32 years ago, it was called a Seed Futures. And we uh, we basically, I, w- I wasn't married yet. I was alone, but I'd been in law school and learned all I wanted to learn. But uh, it was the time when Seize the Moment was big. If you remember Robin Williams, Carpe Diem, and the Dead Poet Society. And, and uh, I walked out of law school at Christmas of my second year and had a job down at the Mexican border collecting seed. And we were collecting a weed that was going to be an ornamental flower for drought-tolerant landscaping in Tucson, Arizona, way back then. Um, but I, I latched on to a seed company named Abzorka Farm up in Wyoming, which was owned by a cousin and his wife. And they were, they were in charge of supplying local seed to a, a coal mine. And it was an early restoration project that used something besides pasture grasses. And so uh, we had this, this wish list of species for coal mine strip reclamation up in Wyoming. And and for one year, I was employed by them and ran around uh, northern Montana and Wyoming and and collected seed. And and I I just never looked back. The following year, I I started my my own independent operation and contracted sales to them. And within a few years, uh, a big company in Utah, Native Plants Incorporated, us shot up and 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 there was no end in the demand all of a sudden for native species that weren't grown on farms. And we've really never had to market much over the years because the demand for that kind of material never stops growing. And we're doing much better at growing it on farms now. And some of our seed goes to farm production. We're very busy with the government right now working on IDIQ collections, which are seeds that are genetically localized somewhere that they have a demand for. So they want to grow stuff that evolved in a place where they're using it versus bringing in non-natives or even native species from other regions. So we're trying to match local ecotypes with seed that evolved in those ecotypes. And that trend sells itself. Um, those species are what are related to the local pollinators, uh, the local flora and fauna, the, the ecology of the site. And, and that is what seems to make long-term success, not the species that we've been bringing in from as far away as Russia, the Eurasian dryland grasses that we've put on the range for years. They grow as monocultures. And, and they do well for erosion control, but no ecological connectivity. Those are the buzzwords we live on. The next thing you knew, we were supplying seed into the common pool for fires through the Forest Service and the BLM. And then lo and behold, we're, we're 
10 miles from Lake Tahoe. Well, guess what's always going on at Lake Tahoe? The watershed preservation up there, uh, physical stability, the habitats, uh, and 17 watersheds to keep the sediments out of the lake and keep the lake blue. And so those are those are markets that scream for local genetic material. And here we sit. So we, we branched out for years and worked all over the Western USA, Canada and Mexico. But then when we realized the complexity of a local ecotype, we had to slow down and say, well, we don't just want sagebrush and rabbit brush for the Great Basin. We want all the spring herbs. We want all the other shrubs. We want the colonizer species. And then the, the specialized habitat for monarchs in Western Nevada or any other specialty animal out there has its habitat. Sage grouse is big. Their habitat's all over this. The, the bi-state sage grouse restoration work we do is with California down in Bridgeport. And so that all wants local seed. And, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my career and it's just getting good. The science of the genetics, of following the genotypes of these species, and then matching what we're collecting to those, the, the habitat requirements with those genotypes is, is all being documented now by scientists, both private and public sector, sort of confirming and vindicating what we sort of always have thought. And we just didn't have the words or the scientific uh, capability to know what's going on. And, and now we do. And so I'm, I'm just hoping that, that others pick up and take off from where we are. And I'm, I'm sort of optimistic. There's a lot of young students coming out in, in, in the public schools and the colleges that are, are dialed in on such scientific minutia, but that minutia all ties together into a bigger picture and, and it's all being understood that. So soil science is a whole nother category, would have been my, my next choice for another life because it's the building block with, with geology, it's the building block of what grows and, and why it grows and the interrelationship between plants, roots, and soil, the microbials in the soils. That's a whole invisible world of why plants survive or perish without that soil connectivity. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. Um, so if someone is probably new to what your business does, can you explain to them how you might be able to like customize a seed mix for like where they're living, if they're in an urban setting? or outside of that or how, what goes into that choice for you or, or suggestion? In Reno, we just had a conference and set up urban work and brought in all the engineering firms and the architects and had this big lunch up at Rancho San Rafael and talked about seed blends for the new age yard. And every yard is different. And we started right off with our own. We had a little house up in the Northwest off of 7th Street. It was dead turf grass, which are cool season grasses, which don't like summer heat and bad clay soils in our desert climate. And we tore all the turf up and made a dust storm and all the neighbors were scratching their heads. What are they doing? It was a showcase yard on a corner of an intersection. And we planted all of these native grasses and wildflowers and all sorts of heights and statures. And we tell homeowners, um, we sell shrubs, grasses, and flowers. Some of these plants can be six feet tall. So you have to be very careful about what you put in the ground. Um, you don't want to bury your sidewalk or, or your driveway or, or, or some windows that you have view sheds out of. But we grew 
uh, some wildflower islands in the middle of bunch grasses, got rid of the lawnmower, literally, and put a few overheads out there to replace these dead sprinkler systems and worked on the soils a little, which is big, big time advice. That's where you start. If you're going to plant seed, one thing you have to know is the the old yard has roots from old grasses in it. It has tons of weed seeds. And when you create a void by killing everything off, you are inviting a disaster into your yard. And so you have to be aware that initially you're going to be discouraging weeds. And if you have living roots of turf grass still in your yard and you go plant other things and make everything happy and start irrigating it, that turf might come back to haunt you. And I tell a lot of folks, if if you want to start a transition, stop mowing and go on with your irrigation on a lighter schedule and, and see what it looks like. A lot of turf grasses are low profile, and and we'll even tell folks, leave the perimeter unmowed and mow the center if you still want to play bocce ball and you have little children that want to run around and and see what happens. And then, then we start throwing seed into some of those old turfs. A transition from an old mowed turf to a wild landscape has a lot of nuances in between. And so you can have, up at Tahoe, we have lots of turf alternative blends that we use because of seasonal homeowners. They want something that's relatively low profile, that's not mowed, doesn't need much fertility, may or may not be watered, and it'll just sit there and do the erosion control job that folks like the TRPA in the city of South Lake Tahoe and the Forest Service want when you're living in those watersheds up there. In Reno, lots of the older landscaping that needs lots of water and lots of fertility ends up sending sediment and nutrient to the river, to the Truckee, off to Pyramid Lake to help promote the algal blooms. And that's been one of our biggest pushes is to stop the watershed contaminations uh, that cause those problems. And Tahoe is so progressive in that front, but conceptually, the same idea applies to Reno. We just have, I, I guess at Fatal, there's a, a lot more funding to keep the lake blue, and, and it's a defined watershed by the perimeter around the lake. But homeowners can be a big part of this. Um, we grow milkweed all over our farm just to help monarch butterflies, and they've had a real crash in their population to migrate up from the central California coast. The, we went down and checked all those uh, areas out around Pismo and Monterey a couple of years ago, and the, the numbers of monarchs there are way down. But, uh, you know, as we were about to leave Reno, the shrubs that we had seeded into our front yard were sprouting all over the place. Um, Growing natives in your yard, I tell people, is a patient game. The most important thing in a seed blend for them are early colonizing species that will help to crowd out weeds, root in the soil, stabilize, and sort of go away. We call it seral transition or or seral type transition into what will be your climax community. This is basic ecological restoration concepts that we use in the yard. But that means your yard is going to change. First year, second year, third year. And down the road, though, you're going to have much more definition of mature grasses in bunches with wavy heads and, and shrubs that have variable canopy heights. And you want to be very careful where you put those shrubs. They're woody plants that can grow big. I tell people, do you, if you want a, a Bouchard gardener, a very refined English landscape, don't call us. Call a landscape architect and plant very specific things where you want that sense of control. And nature's a little more wild. Nature evolves. Nature changes year by year and by season. And you have to let the weeds cohabitate a little while this starts. But if you if you know what's not good and what's good, 
The idea isn't to try to just nuke everything that's bad or uproot all those weeds because you'll also be tearing out good sprouts. But if most of the weeds in your yard are annuals and they are usually start off that way, all you got to do is cut them off for a year and you're you're eliminating that plant and the seed from the seed bank of the soil and you leave your favorable stuff to grow up and make seed and drop that seed into the soil and over time you're altering the seed bank away from what was turf and weeds into the perennials and even the annual flowers you know we like those too um, but you're changing the seed bank for the long term but the I would say third, three quarters of your work is up front with the soil, with the preparation, the timing, getting things germinated and stabilized. Then a quarter of your work over the next year is teasing weeds away, encouraging the plants you want, making a few changes here and there. Um, Irrigation is a little simpler. It can be on drip or it can be overheads. But we went to the trouble to put all these drips and micro jets onto our, our Reno property. Within two years, the plants just overwhelmed those systems. We cut them off at the ground and abandoned them and put very strategic overheads in a few places that we would turn on once a week. And a lot of folks have no sense of a green thumb when they walk in our door and we start talking. We feel like a marriage counselor because we'll, we'll ask a question and he'll look at her, her will look at him, and neither one of them has any idea what they want to say. And we can have some serious arguments. You got to duck around here once in a while. But, but So we play marriage counselor and we, we finally figure out what they really want in their yard and we can help out. But some of these people scream to go down and talk to your local landscape architect or your architectural firm. So can you guide people as to like if they're going to buy a seed blend you're going to kind of steer them in the direction over the next few years how that plan should roll out we do a lot of that and we're down in gardnerville now instead of reno and and we do we do a lot of advice giving um we're we're more commercial though uh, we deal with a lot of times landscape contractors and housing development and government agencies. That's most of our work. So we don't market retail much anymore. But people are welcome and we prefer, especially with COVID, we prefer phone calls. We like to give phone advice. We like people to go visit our website and we're continually adding things in there. Um, how to seed, what to seed, when to seed, how to deal with soils, uh, techniques for doing these sort of things. Um, but our website is not secure for sales, um, but we do UPS daily from here. Um, a lot of inexpensive seed, though, UPS is more than the cost of the seed, unless you your time and your gas to drive on down, but you're welcome to. Okay. Well, super. So what is your website address? Uh, comstockseed.com. It's, it's lovely. There's a, there's a blog in there. Occasionally, we're in there. There's movies of the owls in our barn hatching and raising chicks. Uh, great for third graders, a little gory at times. Um, and Aiden in our office is very website uh, literate. She's relatively new here and she's expanding that site. Um, and we hope to eventually secure the site for website transactions as well. Thank you, Ed, for that in-depth information about using native seed and restoration and reclamation in our yards and local land restoration projects. To listen to a complete recording of this conversation, please check out our bonus September episode called Delving into Local Ecological Restoration with Ed Kleiner with Comstock Seed. And now for our discussion with Lorraine Fitzhoff with Vital Bee Buds. I'm speaking with Lorraine Fitzhoff, who retired from her 19-year career as a math and computer science teacher with Douglas High School and is now the proud owner of Vital Bee Buds in Carson Valley. 
She uses permaculture or ecological gardening in her mission to grow pollinator plants that support all of our pollinators. She sells these plants at local farmers markets for gardeners and farmers to support a healthy, thriving ecosystem. So welcome, Lorraine. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about Vital Bee Buds and what inspired you to start it. I have always used gardening as a therapeutic hobby for decades. I was originally living in Seattle, and then when I relocated with my family to Gardnerville, Nevada, the conditions were so different. Um, I had to do a lot of research on successful gardening in our climate, the dry, harsh conditions and the critters and where we live. We have every creature almost um, that you can have, so I started to research, and then once you get going, you you get leads into other information. So what really also piqued my interest was permaculture and sustainability. So very good information. So I understand that you are quite passionate about protecting our remaining monarch butterflies as well as other pollinators. Can you explain a little bit in detail the reasons um, we would all benefit from planting maybe more pollinator habitats for our butterflies and native and honeybees and birds and bugs and all those good things? When you get outside and you're gardening, you start to, you're connecting, there's the smells, the sounds, just for our own health, including a vegetable garden and the, you know, the rich food that we get from a vegetable garden, the pollinator plants attracting the pollinators, our our human benefit is exponential. And then really with regards to our, our, the health of the planet, um, I think they give us indications as to how healthy our environment is. So just, you know, preserving an ecosystem that we can observe ourselves in our own bubble, then then seeing how it's doing and learning how you can expand upon that, I think is just extremely enjoyable behavior and knowledge. The information that you get, you can see where you're at, how you're doing. And then a lot of, for example, my customers will say, I have this plant, this plant, I have all these. And there, they just kind of puff up in a moment of, I'm doing pretty good for the pollinators. (laughs) And there's a poster from Pollinator Partnership that shows the different kinds. So we commonly imagine the bees, but even the honeybees, although we want them, the native pollinators are two, three times more uh, effective at pollinating our gardens. So the emphasis for me has always been the natives. And then additionally, we have bees moths and bats. What are some of the plants that um, you're providing that people can purchase from you that are helpful to grow these types of habitats? Maybe starting with you know, explaining to us the difference between perennials and annuals and biennials. Sure. Logically, a lot of folks will say, oh, it it made more sense to me that you would call in a plant that grows back every year an annual, which is a common mistake. So then they are thankful. I I usually at market will say perennials grow back every year. So it's the perennial. It's that the opposite thinking happens with annuals, that they don't grow back every year. And then the definition of a biennial is that it doesn't flower until the second year. And then uh, both annuals and biennials 
uh, replicate by seeds. Um, they, can, they drop their seeds and then there's more plants coming. So they seem like they're maybe perennial, but they're not. And then perennials drop their leaves and they go dormant in the fall and the winter. And then it's kind of you know, always uh, a special thing to see the flat ground become, you know, big green stems of something and peeking through. So that's pretty magical. And a lot of people really do appreciate perennials for that reason. Yeah. And the plants that I offer are a range between what grows in our area that a gardener would want that uh, could be an annual, for example, one that is an excellent pollinator plant that's an annual is borage. And myself, I haven't yet germinated those for sale, but that would be one that I would want to because the list that I, I have accumulated native or uh, the most pollinator effective plants, uh, borage would be on there. And I really do want to stick to those. Another that is an herb that is an amazing pollinator herb is marjoram, which isn't the most common herb. So I do supply a few culinary herbs just to kind of keep people happy because I could get them, I can germinate them. And then from that small herb selection that I have, then I go to a, a strong pollinator. Let's see, we've got drought, penstemon. There's a list that I am in collaboration with UNR and here Locally, where I'm at Gardnerville, there's Comstock Seed, Ed Kleiner looked through a list and said, I like all those. And that was through UNR and I, uh, her name is Devin Snyder, who is the range ecologist uh, at UNR. And she knows specifically more about grasses. So there's a great basin grass that I would like to encourage folks to put out in their garden. That's similar to a very tall wheat like, uh, you know, willowy wheat field type plant. And it can get even, you know, quite tall, but um, uh, to try to help the environment by replacing what we might have that uh, isn't as supportive of the pollinators. It's all available on the website. I have the front page where um, there's a new arrivals, vitalbeebuds.com, there's bee, bee balm, etc. So again, just sticking to the emphasis of the most effective plants. Okay. And can you um, offer some advice on how to successfully plant or care for some of the perennials? Like should we maybe set aside a small meadow area or maybe add small masses to existing beds that we have? So it will depend on the needs of the plant. So when they're saying that they're drought tolerant, the care for those will be far different and not like tending for the moisture and and rich soil type plants. Those drought tolerant plants actually prefer and do much better in a lean soil. We have sandy soil, we have clay soil, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to amend that for the native drought tolerant plants like a penstemon which grows naturally in the desert uh, with you know just extremely hard condition tough conditions 
With regards to that group, I try to definitely educate folks to not overwater them. When a plant is young, you for a drought tolerant plant, you want to keep the soil with increased amount of drainage. So if you were to amend, it wouldn't be with nutrients. It would be with uh, really compost is non-nutrient, a non-nutrient substance. It's really more woody and stems and it has microbes that help the plant underground and the drainage. So we just don't want any water to be sitting around the roots of a drought tolerant plant. And then in, I like what you said about mass, you mentioned um, mass plantings, like a, a wild flower field. It turns out that if we could help the pollinators, the research is saying that they like plants to be together. In other words, we would want to plant say if we're talking about daisies, three to five of those daisies in a clump or a mass. And if you put yourself in a pollinator's shoes, perhaps it makes a lot of sense. They then don't have to hop around there. They've got all the nectar or the pollen that they're looking for in one one visit. And uh, depending on the pollinator, they go searching, you know, as far as three miles and they find their favorite of what all of the gardens and the land gives them in that region. I've heard that after the season that it's um, good to leave some of the dry stems so some of the native bees can set up, I guess, overwintering homes in there. How, How do you usually handle that in your garden? Right. So there are... There are different homes for the pollinators. Some dwell and dig into old rodent bent dens. Some will take the dry stems of plants and they're hollow and they live in the, in those, which you can find those replicated bamboo birdhouses with the bamboo sticks there. And there's this, a particular di- diameter of what that pollinator needs. Uh, so it's important to buy the right one if you do that. Then the leaves on the ground, the messy, the, the more we can leave a layer of mess, the better off the pollinators are. That's why it's important also to landscape uh, design perhaps some grasses in there and that does Ed Kleiner from Comstock can really speak to that or or Devin more than I can where there's there's valleys between clumps of grasses or other plants and those collect seeds and they replicate a particular plant's germination or they provide a home for um, maybe the bumblebees. So there's many different forms of what the pollinators need and for some, if if it's a manicured garden, that actually wouldn't support the pollinators as much as some piles of sticks, uh, leaving open areas of sandy soil. That's where some pollinators will burrow under and those that I mentioned already. So do you ever cut back the um, kind of the dried plants, like maybe right before spring the next year, or how do you do it? Right. I will leave my leaves. I will leave the stems. And yes, agreed. 
right when everything starts to wake up, the ground is, is starting to melt or, or not be so cold and hard. Really, I think when the soil tells you the temperature or the ability to dig and, and put your shovel in the soil would be kind of when I start to prepare. And I still do leave a layer of the leaves to not too thick because then things can, that can be collect moisture and make some of the plants struggle. But to leave a little bit of that layer even longer is, isn't going to hurt. And nature really decomposes on its own. So um, when you think about the lasagna style of composting, where there's layers and layers and you really don't turn it, you just let nature decompose at its own rate. Uh, I like to think of it that way, that the layer of leaves are actually helping. Nice. So um, have you been participating at all or maybe observing for the some of the monarch uh, tracking projects um, or something of that sort? Yes. At my website, if you go to the events um, for the month, there's an event that I shared for folks um, that has come and gone, the dates have, but the links in the description give you all kinds of information about monarchs. And so there's the information about the different stages that the monarch goes through from being an egg to an adult and what the environment needs to be for its success. Uh, Just yesterday and today I checked, I saw, I think, the fifth intra stage of a a monarch larva today, which, and then when I went back to check, it was gone, which means it could be finding a new spot that it likes better for the pupa stage. And um, that's kind of exciting because maybe one will hatch. And there's a lot of information about the success that, uh, of the monarchs and the decrease in their population, but what, what we can do. And so the event particularly that I participated in was the experts recording the data of the location of milkweed and the sightings of monarchs. And so they ask you to provide pictures of both a monarch in any of the stages. You can even take a picture of eggs, and which are quite small. Or you also take pictures of the milkweed that you saw the monarchs around. And then you send those two pictures, and they put you on the map. And you can look at from as low down as Mexico all the way up to Canada, which is stopping on where they stop off through their migrate their migrations going up and back. And right now. Now they're coming back and it's kind of fascinating because they somehow know where to go. So just a very special butterfly. Yeah. Just to backtrack a little bit. Um, do you want to explain to us about milkweed and. Sure. So milkweed requires, um, it requires a moist environment. So for us to grow milkweed, if we are wanting to participate and increase uh, really the plant growing, it has the purpose and it is the only plant that the monarch lays its eggs on and uses for food. And that's what makes it particularly special. In the milkweed, there is the milk of the milkweed that when the butterfly uh, eats 
believes it contains that substance, which becomes a poisonous um, effect on predators. So it's a fascinating thing that through evolution, there's actually another butterfly that has mimicked the exact look of a monarch and it doesn't get killed because predators don't want to be poisoned when they eat these butterflies. Um, Just a side note. And so on the website, I have links for um, information of how to germinate or propagate milkweed and grow it and move it if you want. And uh, I would recommend maybe a drip system. And once uh, milkweed, in my experience, grows in a spot, it really does spread and continues through the moist soil that it finds. So once you get it going, it's pretty, pretty successful. And then there are ways to kind of control where you want it and you can move it if you want to. Pretty much by the same rule for most perennials that once they go dormant, the the leaves have fallen, the fall or even the cold winter, they're not even going to really notice if you dig them up and you move them. And that would be the best time. Okay, that's great. So just as a quick note, um, since it is poisonous, should we just make sure we wash our hands after planting and those things? Okay. Okay. So where and how do you sell to the public? So I have been at three to four markets a week. I tried them out and was happy with the selections and and we'll try different ones next year and the same. And then I do expect to do more of maybe drop off and pick up as time goes on and some online options as well. I have the ability to set that up and that is pending. In addition, I have requests for, I would call it a myself a pollinator patch which would be kind of small maybe you know three by five whatever uh you know acreage or or area that someone has but that would be a small scale you could do one plant in a three foot by a three foot area and then try to arrange you know complementary design if you want i think it's important to note you want to vary your bloom times so you would have early bloomers and We have very common summer bloomers and then those that extend the bloom and the food and the the protection in the fall and the winter. So you end up thinking about all these design elements and timing elements. And then there's also hedgerows that I will participate in with probably more of the uh, drought tolerant and from the point of view of the ag needs on the peripheral of their, their farming lands if you have more area. And do you want to explain to us just really quickly what a hedgerow is? A hedgerow can be a very, say, linear feet, a very long strip of, say, I, you know, I'll just throw out, you know, five yards by a hundred yards that borders a huge acreage crop, perhaps if you're a farmer. And then the purpose of the hedgerow is from the point of view of pollinators there to, like I said before, those pollinators are going to travel anywhere from one mile to three miles and they will go and pollinate the crops. In addition, they can be a little raised and then they have value valleys below so they can um, be a windbreak and be designed to have multi-levels ground cover to one foot two foot up to you know 10 feet depending if you put uh, some of the shrubs in and really on the note of the most effective plant the shrubs for example a raspberry or a blackberry bush if those are left 
to flower, those are, you know, just a powerhouse of food, similar to an apple tree that blooms for a short period, but boy, the honeybees go to that, that kind of thing. So it's fun to, it's fun to design things like that. You, you have a lot to think about and the collaboration between the customer and what they want, and it, it would be unique for everybody, everybody's function. So do you help your customers kind of make those decisions or... I go um, to the collaboration, the initial collaboration of deciding how much they need. Some people don't need, they know exactly what they want. So I would just help them help supply the plants. And then um, in terms of planting the plants, mine are, I think, simple in that they're all in cow pots. So when I germinate my plants, they're, they're already encased in those. I thought, I don't want the customer to be set back or even have death in the plant because the roots had been taken out of a plastic pot. So I chose to go with the cow pots. And I find that they stay a little small in those. And then in my test garden, I notice once they're underground, they jump and they seem to maybe catch up. I cannot say that that is that's purely anecdotal but that has been my experience and a lot of customers are reporting very positive reactions about you know not having the roots disturbed and that the plant does well once it's underground uh, and the other is I like to have the plants hardened off so that it's not going to jump up in like a nurse a mass nurseries can provide and give these optimum conditions that are in side a hoop you know a big nursery hoop house those plants are gonna just be spoiled and then nest and possibly die because they haven't transitioned to outside so mine have been hardened off and I feel they're very quality so do you suggest people maybe soak those pots a little bit so they can absorb moisture before you set it into the ground they could do that that's a great suggestion and when you water and and you can see my plants when I take them to market if the pot is dark and and it really doesn't take much for the cow pot to become moist. And you just dig the hole, put the pot in there, and off it goes. Um, do you have any local organizations or businesses that um, you have found helpful in your quest maybe to live more sustainably that you'd like to recommend? Not in our area, but Xerxes, X-E-R-C-E-S, is my go-to. They have so much information. And then NRCS, National Resource Conservations, there's a chapter in Minden, and the soil expert there uh, also gave me information from Xerxes. Great. And could you give me, um, give us your website address? Sure. Vitalbeebuds.com. B-I-T-A-L-B-E-E-B-U-D-S.com. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing all of this with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. As a quick note, you can find Vital Bee Buds at Sierra Chef Farm to Fork Farmer's Market Wednesdays 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Heritage Park in Gardnerville, Fridays at Bonsai Blue Garden Market in Reno, Nevada, uh, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Kitsky Lane in Reno, and Sparks United Methodist Church Farmer's Market Tuesdays 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., and lastly, Early Bird Farmer's Market in Earrington, 
Nevada, Thursdays 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Dennis Lucky Club. And now a quick rundown of some virtual and around town upcoming events. Uh, the Nature Conservancy in Nevada has webinars coming up. Mining the Sun webinar September 30th of Protecting the Headwaters Forests of the Truckee River October 21st. Then we're moving on to Keep Tahoe Blue has a Keep Tahoe Blue Labor Day cleanup coming up September 8th, Tuesday, 8 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., and that is in the North Lake Tahoe area. They also have a Blue Crew uh, training coming up September 16th, a Stewardship Day on September 26th for the Upper Truckee River. Next, we have Nevada Green Business Network webinar. If you have a business, um, you might be interested in participating. We have September 3rd, Implementation of City of Reno Sustainability and Climate Action Plan, and September 17th, the Green Building and Northern Nevada webinar. Next, we have Reno Food Systems Park Farm Stand. They are having a back-to-school plant sale for two days, Sunday, September 6th, 3 to 7 p.m., and Thursday, September 10th, 4 to 7 p.m. at Park Farm Stand. In addition to what they are normally selling, they have fresh local fruits, vegetables, herbs, flowers, and they are starting to also carry handcraft goods such as reusable cloth bags, earrings, body products, and candles. And also part of that Reno Food Systems, they have a mobile farmer's market which is going to be held Thursdays, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., and that's at the Reno Housing Authority Senior Residence Community Building. Um, also, they have a special pop-up mobile farmer's market event on Neal Road Community Center, Thursday, September 17th, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Next, we have KTMB's Truckee River Cleanup, much anticipated, and that's coming up September 26th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Uh, please visit their website to sign up. And uh, just quick note, Truckee Meadows Earth Day, I'm sorry to hear, but it is canceled. And lastly, we have the Northern Nevada Permaculture Virtual Lecture on River-Friendly Landscaping, Wednesday, October 14th at 6 p.m. And you can find that at the Northern Nevada Permaculture Facebook page or Meetup group page. Uh, also brought to us by Walker Basin Conservancy. They're going to be having a native tree, shrub, and wildflower sale September 18th and 19th, and you'll soon be able to find information at the walkerbasin.org website. For additional details on any of the events just mentioned, then visit gogreenlocally.org and look up the Northern Nevada Hub's event page for more details and website page links. And if anybody has something that they would like to contribute to the show, please call 929-GO-GREEN and we can get back to you and see about including it on the show. Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. Please take good care of you and yours. Stay well and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all. 